Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. First of all, I, I sort of had to just wrap my head around, uh, you know, all of the different elements of the battle, how I wanted to stage it, where we were going to shoot it, picking a location. And there had been some pretty badass uh, dragon battles in the past on, at game, on Game of Thrones that were really focused on Daenerys and the dragon. So I thought it was much more interesting to focus on Jaime Lannister and to be with these soldiers on the ground who are about to see war change forever. Stereotypes about child stars and their longevity in Hollywood are well known. We've all heard the same tragic stories, but contrary to popular belief, there's a greater number of child actors who have beaten the odds and continued on in their showbiz journey. These are their stories. I'm Jaleel White, and this is Ever After. My guest today, I grew up acting alongside this guy in, of all things, an original pilot for Saved by the Bell. It was then titled Good Morning, Miss Bliss, and starred Haley Mills of Disney Parent Trap fame, and as things would turn out, we were all fired. And the show was revamped for Saturday morning instead of prime time. <laughs> but my guest and I both continued to act. As a kid, he was best known for his role as Graham Lubbock in the Growing Pain spinoff Just the Ten of Us, which aired from 1988 to 1990. His other television acting credits included Facts of Life, Highway to Heaven, Different Strokes, Night Court, Good morning, Miss Bliss, obviously, and Webster. This guy was actually kicking my butt age for age back then. <laughs> but at a key point, he decided acting was not his path. And he set a course to become an amazing film and television director. And that's what he is today. Since 2002, he's been one of the most accomplished directors in all of television. His credits include Mad Men, Six Feet Under, New Girl, Brothers and Sisters, House MD, Fargo, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Oh, by the way, he's an executive producer of that, too. And to top it off, he's directed episodes of Game of Thrones for HBO. Two of my favorite episodes, actually, The Spoils of War and Eastwatch. I can't wait to get into all of this. Please welcome Matt Shackman. Wow. <laughs> what an introduction. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So now you see why I was running late, because it takes a lot of time to prepare that. And, and, and dig through your, your, your vast resume. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, indeed. But we, we need to talk a lot about Good Morning, Miss Bliss and how we were unjustly fired. I'm yes, so uh, much better unjustly. than Mario Lopez. So much better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a great time a long time ago. And uh, I really remember fondly playing lots of games of chess with you and getting my ass kicked by you because you are a far better chess player than I am. 
hilarious. I didn't know I was that good back then, but I like hearing it now. Yep. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, man, there were so many people in that cast. Um, namely, uh, Brian Austin Green was also in that cast. Yeah. Um, the late Jonathan Brandis was in that cast. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you remember that. I, I, I went back and I checked it out and I actually ended up working with Jonathan Brandis later in life on a pilot for ABC and Eric Tannenbaum and Kim Tannenbaum's com- uh, company called Gramercy Park. And the, it really starred, um, um, Frank Langella and, uh, gosh, I forget the others. It was this giant drama cast and, um, I don't want to be a, such a, be a downer, you know, I mean, we, we will pick this back up, but I just kind of want to honor somebody who, whose path we both crossed. Yep. And uh, I remember Jonathan asking me repeatedly on the shooting of that project. Um, do you think this is going to get picked up? And honestly, you know, Matt, I was like, talk about 2001. I think I was in Canada. I, I was getting $300 a day per diem and my check went right back home. I didn't care. I was standing in a freaking the Ritz with the, the, the Yankees and partying with them every night. Um, <laughs> and then I have this actor that's asking me, just like, I can tell he's like every other day, like, what do you think, man? You think we'll get picked up? And uh, he invited me to his birthday party and we never even really hung out as, as kids. Uh, you know, we just crossed paths like that. And uh, I said, okay, I'll go to his birthday party. You know how it is when people start bonding on sets and now you get these professional invites and he's like, all sure. right, I'm, I'll go to his birthday party. And so his birthday, I remember Jonathan's birthday was right before Upfronts, like literally about two weeks before Upfronts around May. And um, he asked me again at his birthday party, will, will you, um, you think we'll get picked up? And I, I, that's when I had to just level with him. I'm like, Jonathan, I don't care. Like the cast had 26 people in it. Like, I don't even know if that's sustainable from a budget standpoint. Like right. I had a great time, man. He was like, all right. And sure enough, the uh, Upfronts came and went and we did not get picked up. And I remember being at my computer at my house and it came across Yahoo that Jonathan Brandis had taken his life. Hmm. And I just started bawling. Yeah. I started bawling for a guy that I'd, I'd crossed many paths with, seen on auditions, acted with a few times, um, obviously gotten to know a little bit better during the, the filming of the pilot in Toronto. But I started bawling. I remember my mom came in the room and she just kind of put her hand on my shoulder and I'm just like, Mom, I'm literally grieving for this kid more than anybody I've ever cried for in my own family. Yeah. And she's just like, let it out, baby, let it out. And I'm like, because I think I know why he killed himself. Really? This dude asked me repeatedly, is this thing getting picked up? There is no coincidence at all that he has taken his life within two weeks. Yeah. Of all the shows being announced and us being omitted from the schedule. And, um... So anyway, like I said, I don't want to start on, on a down note, but that memories like that are really kind of what prompted me to even want to do a podcast like this, because it I feel like there are people out there that this could even be a healing for who were in our business, maybe got lost in, in you know, maybe lost their way, um, maybe just fell victim to shenanigans, you know, just big agencies doing what they do, that kind of stuff or whatever. And um yeah, so I was just I just wanted to share that. And so it was like it was weird. I, um anybody from that cast, anybody from that time, anytime from that era, they just kind of have a special place in my heart. For and sure. so it was like I I followed you all these years. Yeah. And it was very important that if I did this podcast that I had somebody who was not famous, but yeah. had quote unquote 
made it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm honored to be here. Jonathan Brandis, I remember that day when he passed too. It hit me like a ton of bricks. And us. He, was, he was a really good actor. He was the best actor of the bunch of us on that show. He, he was so yeah. good at that age. And um, he I, I didn't get to know him well. He, he kept to himself, but he seemed like a very soulful, smart guy. And um, it's such a tragic loss. This business can really mess with your head. And I don't know what led to that decision, whether it was financial or what was going on, but it's a it's a huge loss. And uh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that you guys intersected all those years later. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely did. Uh, we also have some other people in common. Um, and that is Dulé Hill and Rode Rodriguez, his new yeah. name. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Yes. From from the, the USA show Psych. Oh, man, those guys are a hoot to work with. And uh, they talk about you all the time. So you must have had, give me one memory from the psych set as a director. So many. I spent Saturday, actually, just this past Saturday, James and uh, and Dulé were doing a play reading on Zoom, you know. uh, And so we, uh, it's quarantine life. So I joined, uh, I joined them for a reading of a play that James is excited about. They're fantastic. That show was the best show to work on. I started working on it early, early on, and I stayed with it through pretty much. I, I directed its 100th episode, too. I was with it for okay. years. What a great experience. Everyone in that show was fantastic. And then to be, you know, to be a part of a show where, where James and Dulé were producing it and James was writing stuff and they were directing, and it just felt like a really collaborative place where people were making something special together. I will always be jealous of James's photographic memory. His ability to retain dialogue in a glance is just... I. It's uncanny. My best uh, my best memory of Psych, I have to say, is we did this episode about Jaws and the finale all took place on a boat. And we were out the, you know, Vancouver, out in the, the ocean there in this boat that was just rocking all over the place. And James was just getting wider and wider and wider during the course of shooting. He had to do one of those <laughs> giant monologues where he wraps everything up and says who the killer yeah. is. And, you know, one of those classic murder she wrote conclusions. And I'm rolling the camera and he would just stop in the middle of the monologue, turn, puke over the side of the boat, swing back, <laughs> wipe his mouth, and then go again. And he just did that for like eight hours. Like just, he is such an unbelievable, focused, you know, actor. He is an incredible guy. So he got through it. I don't know how he did it. Yo, just acting comes so natural to James Roday that it's just like shooting free throws for Michael Jordan. It really is. And that's yeah. one reason why I can't stand our little silly star system of who's A-list and B-list and who's dating who, because I've boiled the business down to who can go. Like, yeah, right. when, when somebody gets seasick and they got to deliver two pages, who can do that? James Bader and James Roday. <laughs> Rodriguez. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, yeah. You know and, what I'm saying? <laughs> and Dulé Hill is unbelievable. That guy can do anything. You know, what a oh, yeah. great dramatic actor, a great comedian. And he's also, I mean, I, you know this too. He's, he was a great, you know this very well. He's a great dancer. I mean, he came up and yeah. bringing the noise, bringing the funk. And so every time, you know, whenever you're going to do a dolly shot and you got to move, they lay down what they call a dance floor, which is which is plywood with a little piece of plastic on the top. So, it, so the shot is really smooth and the... And every time they did that, Dulé would just hop on there and just start tap dancing. And I would always just be like, oh, my God, this guy can do anything, you know? Oh, so yeah. The- no, Dulé was a super dancer, man. I, yeah. he, uh, he actually starred in the Tap Dance Kid on Broadway. And right. I saw him as a kid in that. I was in the audience watching him, not knowing that literally like 12, 13 years later, I'm going to run into this guy at a bar in freaking Nell's in, in, uh, in New York. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we're going to become great friends. Yeah. Um, one one Dulé story, though. Dulé is very petty. 
and I like to <laughs> shine a light on his pettiness. Um, Dulé likes to have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich um, made for him by Crafty and delivered to him on set, which I'm actually against. I don't think it's very professional for actors to eat on set. Mm. But um, I intercepted this sandwich. I took a very large bite out of it, and I insisted that Crafty continue to deliver the sandwich with the bite taken out. Nice. And the look on his face, I wish selfies had been invented back then, when she had the audacity to hand him a bitten sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) It was so authentically like, what the fuck? Are you kidding me? <laughs> she really played it off too. She sold it to her. She sold it <laughs> until she finally laid blame on me. But that's what those guys would do on set every yeah. day, every moment. And uh, it, I didn't even consider that a job. That was a rite of passage being up in Vancouver shooting my episodes of Psych with those cats. Absolutely. Yeah. So I I heard you love puppets. Now puppets either creep you, creep you out uh, or or you love them for your own special reason. I do. I have this, like one of my prized possessions is this ancient marionette theater that I found in the Czech Republic with my wife. We were just taking a trip, ended up in this tiny, tiny little town and found this ancient marionette theater and bought it, somehow got it shipped back here. I had to use like Chesky Posty or whatever they call it. They had to break it up into a billion little boxes and send it to California. And it's in my office at the guy run the Geffen Playhouse, which is a theater here in Los Angeles. And that's yeah. where it is. I, I moved it from my house when my little girl got tall enough to destroy them. And uh, she loved them, too. She was super into them. So I had to take them out of the house temporarily. But they'll come back. Um, but, yeah, I do. I love it. It's beautiful. You can change the scenery around. It's got a curtain. It's like a little rep company. It's really cool. I was in Vietnam, and I came across a puppet theater um, there. in um, I think I was in... Um, I was in Ho Chi Minh City. I was in Ho Chi. No, I was in Hanoi. I was in Hanoi. And Hanoi is very uh, eclectic. It's it's almost like um, it can give you real uh, Soho vibes, to be quite honest. Huh. And uh, and I was just drawn to it. And everybody in our group was like, well, you know, it's kind of creepy, man. You like, It's like, look, you either like puppets or you don't like puppets. So obviously <laughs> your daughter likes puppets. And I remember being a kid in the fifth grade going to the Bob Baker marionette. Oh, yes. Here, right? Right? Was I that love like, that place. Right? That was the ultimate, like, third grade field trip if you were in the public school system in Los Angeles back then. <laughs> the most unassuming place. Like, it's under a bridge. It's like where a troll yep. should live on the way to yep. downtown. And it's yep. magic in there. I love that yep. place. And it's you right know, by Dodger Stadium in Echo Park, kind of. Yeah. I mean, we, keep going. Keep going. I I, uh, I actually, at the Geffen Playhouse, the theater that, that I serve as the artistic director, and I want to start a children's theater. And the first thing I did is reach out to the Bob Baker Marionette Theater and say, let's do something together. And we hired this amazing playwright named Luis Alfaro. And I said, hey, Luis, I want you to come in for a meeting. I didn't tell him what it was about. And I said, I want you to partner with the Bob Baker Marionette Theater to write a play. And he started, his eyes welled up with tears. And he said, you know, when I was a young boy growing up in L.A., I witnessed someone get murdered and I lost the ability to talk like I couldn't speak the post-traumatic stress. Whoa. And I went to a, a speech therapist and she said, you should go to the Bob Baker Marionette Theater. And she arranged for him to go there and talk to the puppets. And it's how he learned to get his voice back. And he had no idea I'd brought him in to write a play with the Bob Baker Marionette Theater. And he had you know, had this complete journey from being a kid to that moment you know, learning to speak again and now writing a play to give voice to these puppets. It was really beautiful. 
Yeah, I love those were special days, man. Going going to that place as a kid, you just sat Indian style, mesmerized. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. Now, now you got a chance to be on Webster. How many episodes of Webster did you do? I did two with Emmanuel two? Lewis. Yeah, two episodes so did, of Webster. You, yep. Okay, you did two episodes. Two episodes. Okay, I have a fun fact for you though. Yeah. If you were a black kid and you were taller than Manny, they wouldn't let you be on the show. Oh my gosh. I, I auditioned for Webster twice, booked it each time. And each time they told me they canceled the job through my mom and my, my agent because they were like, yeah, he's taller than Webster. Oh, man, that's heartbreaking. No, they were, listen, man, there are how you the rules of casting in the game of who ended up on television even back then. It, they were so far not what they are today. Like we are so much more progressive at everything yeah. today. But that was a legitimate thing. They actually had a height chart when you went to uh, to audition. Wow! And um, and uh, and it wasn't for the white kids though. But no black kid could be taller than West. <laughs> wow! <laughs> and that's that's hard. That's a real that's a real fun fact. Now, he, what's really funny is um, I'm actually really cool with Emmanuel Lewis to this day, and uh, I had one of the best nights ever in my life hanging out with him and Jermaine Dupree and DeBrat at a club in Atlanta because that's where he's from. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it, it's, I love the full circle journey of, uh, of what we do in our business though. And I love telling him, I was like, dude, I booked your show twice though, but I was talking to you. They wouldn't let me on. <laughs> <laughs> I was, uh, I, I, I was so intimidated by him. And that was back when he was hanging out with Michael Jackson, you know, and he had like his dressing room was all MJ, like all the time. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I don't think I said five words to him outside of work. Cause I was just thought, wow, he's so famous. He Emmanuel this- Lewis was huge. Oh my huge. gosh. Yeah. And, right? and it- yeah, I mean, my Bialik was on the show with me. We were like, uh, team, like friends with him and, She's gone on to have an amazing life and career doing all sorts of different things. It was fun. I remember being on that show. Yeah. Hey, folks. On behalf of the episode sponsor, I want to get real for a minute. As a working father, I can tell you some days can be extremely stressful. (laughs) And I play both roles. Sometimes I'm the mom and the dad. (laughs) Life is an uphill battle. I don't care how successful you've been. Hollywood offers a ton of rejection. And it can be really hard to maintain a positive attitude at all times. From a mental health standpoint... We could all benefit from a dose of therapy, whether you're just having a conversation with a friend, a family member, or a professional. That's where BetterHelp comes in. That's Better H-E-L-P. BetterHelp offers professional counseling done securely online. Connect with a broad range of mental health experts, no uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp can access your needs and match you with your own licensed professional to help you access your goals. Schedule weekly video or phone sessions and new users can start communicating in just under 48 hours. Now, this isn't some crisis hotline or fast food self-help. No, no, no. BetterHelp is committed to great therapeutic matches. So they make it free and easy to change counselors if need be. You can log into your account anytime to message your counselor and you'll get timely, thoughtful messages. BetterHelp is affordable and even offers financial aid. Visit BetterHelp.com slash ever. That's BetterHelp and join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Ever after listeners. Ah, now you guys, you get 10% off your first month by going to BetterHelp.com slash ever. Question, how did show cancellations affect you emotionally as a kid? Like, did they, did they bother, you know, was it like a, eh, not a big deal or 
you know, I, I just know that I've never been fired as a kid. And, and I saw certain kids that did get fired under certain circumstances. And that's something you learn to deal with as an adult. But when it happens to you as a kid, it's a different level of rejection. So like when just the 10 of us went away or whatnot, like, what did you feel? What did you, did you pick up the pieces quickly? Is it not really what you wanted to do anyway? Was it just kind of like, oh, you know, you're. Yeah. What'd you feel? It's a good question. You know, the, the thing I immediately think of is I remember, you know, the last step of getting a show is going to network. You remember that when yep. you go and you audition in front of you. And sometimes you go in and out. Explain and they, to people what that is. Explain yeah. to people the network process. I want them to feel it. Yeah. Oh, God, it's such a horrible thing. But yeah, you, you go to the initial couple of auditions with the casting director. You get called back. You meet the producers and the writers. You get called back. And finally, you have to go in front of all the network executives. And usually it feels like a, like doing a play, like big raked stadium seats. You know, you go in there, the lights are on, they're filming it at the same time and they torture you. They go, they, they, they did back in the day, they'd bring you in and out. They'd mix and match with different people to kind of build the ensemble of the show. And then you'd get cut kind of slowly during the day, you know, or you'd make it to the end and you get the job. Like, so it was, it was brutal. And if you're seven or eight years old, it's, it's like a hundred times more brutal than, than it is for an adult, but it's brutal for, for an adult too. But I remember I had two networks on the same day. One was for this, this show that like, how old? Oh, uh, how old was I? I must, gosh, I must've been like seven or eight, something like that. Nine, seven, eight. Dude, even the dialogue right. retention. Are you kidding me? And you know what? I'm gonna put this yeah. out there. Yeah. White kids always had way more auditions than black kids. Really? So y'all were going on, y'all were going on auditions <laughs> oh, like no. eight. This I'm telling you, dude, y'all were going on auditions like eight in a week, back to back. You would have three auditions in one day. You would um, have, um, and it was like, for me, when I even got two auditions in one day, it was like, whoa, I was frazzled. Like, yeah. um, that is amazing that you did two networks in one day. Well, this is the story. This is the story. I didn't do the second network because I was... They, I was so traumatized by the first network and I, I was down to the wire to me and this other kid. It started with like five or six kids. And I remember to the day, to this day, it was about playing like the son of this football player, Dick Butkus, remember, who had like the worst yeah. name ever. But for some reason, I knew who that guy was and I was excited about being on, on Dick Butkus's show. And, <laughs> and when I got cut and I didn't make it, I was so upset. I remember my mom saying, all right, well, we got to go to this other you know, this other network. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. You know, whoever heard of a show called Growing Pains making it, right? So I pass on going to the network for Growing Pains between me and Jeremy, who ended up getting it and having a great time it was meant to be for him. Um, but I, you know, passed on that. And uh, and then years later, when I ended up on this show, Just the Ten of Us, which was a spinoff of Growing Pains, they were like, oh, we should get that kid who, who like totally iced us at the network and didn't show up. And uh, so it ended up working out OK. But I remember that was like my low point of uh, child acting days was that double network day. Um, but no, I mean, when Just the Ten of Us ended, you know, I think we all have different times in our life where certain things hit us in different ways. But I was ready to go to high school. I was ready for some normal life. And uh, so when that show ended, I was like, OK, this is good. Like this this. This will allow me to kind of figure out who I am now, because, you know, when I started, I was four years old. And I, I don't, how old were you when you did your? Yeah, I was three. Yeah, there you go. You beat me. You beat me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you're so young that are you even making these choices? Right. And so as you get older, you start to choose, you kind of reengage. There are moments where you maybe could step out. But I'd finally gotten to that point where the question is, and I, I still wrestle with this question, like, who am I? 
if I'm not on TV? You know, would I still be, would I be a director? Would I be involved in this industry if it wasn't something that had been so key to my identity as such a youngster, you know? Um, so, yeah. There's a moment I want to isolate in that. And please feel free to expound even more. But there's a moment I want to isolate in that, in that you had a, you had a, a traumatic moment where you were vying for something against another kid and, and, and you lost it and you didn't have your mojo for the next audition, which was probably like what, two hours later or something like that. And your mom was loving enough to say, all right, shut it down. And I really feel like that's the difference. I'm serious. Like that's the difference. Like there were not a lot, there were more kids that we didn't know about put it that way. There were more kids that we didn't know about who were getting dragged to that network audition, no matter how the first one had just melted them down. And the fact that your mom didn't do that is really a testament to your relationship, your relationship with your parents. And I don't even have to wonder how wonderful it is. Please tell me though, which parent was the heavy, which parent was the business and which parent (laughs) knew you better. Like if your parent, which parent, if you had, it had to take a test on my son, Matt, would ace that test and the other pair would be like, well, wait a minute, well, 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 what did you write down? <laughs> First off, that's a great point. And you're absolutely right. And when I think about our friends who have, have had really interesting adult careers completely separate from their acting careers, a lot of it has to do with really good parents. You know, parents who raise their kids, even in the middle of all this kind of chaos in Hollywood with a really good, solid sense of what a family is, you know. Uh, Fred Savage, you know, couldn't have been more famous. He was one of our, you know, one of our colleagues, friends who, you know, could not have been more famous at that age, but really good parents, really good siblings, like, you know, had his, his sort of life stuff together and has done great and is a totally healthy person. So I think family is a huge part of that. I'd have to say the answer to that question about who knew me better and who was the heavy and all that stuff. My mom was definitely with me for all of it, because I grew up an hour north in Ventura. My dad's a doctor. He was working all the time. So it was my mom who would drive back and forth to auditions, who'd be with me on set, who was really with me. So she was really it in terms of like being a part of the process there. And my dad was busy, you know, paying the bills and and being a dad. Um, But so my mom probably knew me better during that era, too. So you are a G. Your mom would drive from Ojai in for auditions. Ventura, not quite Ojai, but like an hour north. Like, so I was born in Ojai, okay. but we moved to Ventura when okay. I was, when I was like a one, I think one year old or a baby. Something. Yeah. So, yeah. I thought my mom was a G because my mom would drive all the way from Pasadena to Venice if I had auditions. And we're talking like 3.30 traffic after school. Oof. You know, sometimes you get pulled out of school early. Uh, so you would end up doing your audition at 2, 2.30. Now you're really coming back in like 4.30, 5 o'clock traffic. <laughs> I remember um, the number one, you know, when I think about life on the, the freeway, I think of the Sig Alert. Do you remember the Sig Alert? Yes, the Sig <laughs> Alert. Yeah. I spent my life. <laughs> Do you life... remember the Thomas guy? Yo, Do you remember the Thomas guy? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I was good at that, man. I would find wherever, you know, oh, my gosh. Yeah. I would literally be sitting there with my mom and I'm helping her sitting next to her with the Thomas guy as we're lost. Trying to find our auditions. So is it is it San Vicente in Brentwood or San Vicente yes. over in, over by Cedar Sinai Hospital? Yeah, San Vicente will mess you up, homeboy yes. in LA. It will mess you up. Yes, it will. <laughs> yeah, a lot of traffic, a lot of time. Yeah, LA's a rough town without GPS. I'll tell you. Um, do you do you think that it was a benefit? 
to you that you did not become too famous at an early age. And the reason why I'll, I'll qualify that is um, I used to have a friend who our mothers were more friends, but he ended up on a, a Fox show around the same time that I ended up on Family Matters. And he was about 12 or 13 and they did it for two seasons. And when the show got canceled, he was such a determined actor and so determined to act. He was at the point where he was getting recognized in the streets. And I feel like if you get to that point where you get recognized, there's a pressure to keep it going. And so he almost, and, you're, and people are coming up to you in the streets and they're asking you like, yo, well, like whatever happened to your show, man? Like, is it coming back? And, you know, when's your next show? And they ask you those cliche questions as if you have any control over it. Right. And I feel like he never was able to get discover who he really was anymore because he had to go through his awkward years wanting to be on a show again because he got canceled at age 14. I feel like you got more or less canceled, but but released to the wild again to become who you were. Yeah. But were meant to become. You understand what I'm saying? It's like, do you feel like it was ever a benefit that you didn't be for as much acting as you did, Matt? Yeah. Like fame is just not a part of your life. Yeah. It's very true. Yeah, no, I was a working stiff. You know, I I am grateful for it because I made some money that allowed me to, you know, pay for some of my college and all that. So I think it probably in retrospect was great. I mean, you and Fred were way more famous than I was. And sort of I watched what you guys had to navigate. And it is a it is a different thing. Um, I, of course, you know, you know, it's hard to say, OK, well, will I ever top what I did when I was 13? Will I top what I did when I was 12 um, is part of your your thinking. And so maybe it fueled me because I wasn't that successful that I wanted to keep sort of going and getting better at, you know, you know, acting. And, and I did do acting in college and I directed in college. And it, it was really in college that I did my transition from acting to directing. And that's when I found that I, I really enjoyed doing that more. So I think you're right. I think everything adds up. And in retrospect, you can sort of see the path, even if you can't obviously see it when you're living it. Um, and so I'm sure that, you know, that that had a big impact on me not being as famous. And that's cool because, you know, frankly, I would be terrible at it. I just am such... <laughs> I love staying home. I don't want to go out and have my picture taken and shake everybody's hands. And you know, that thing when you're 12, 13, all you want to do is fit in. And, but yep. you're, but you're on a TV show. So you're never going to fit in with everybody else because you're different. And so people are jealous of it. People are interested in it. People are always looking at you at that time when all you want to do is be a pack animal and kind of disappear. I don't know if you ever had that. Cause you're much more, at least I think of being much more extroverted than I am, but like, um, that was deeply uncomfortable for me as I was hitting those awkward transition years, for sure. You know, I'm definitely an extrovert, but I enjoy my privacy. And so, you know, back then, I could never have had a glimpse into the future that we have, that we live now, that my privacy would literally just be gone forever on yeah. every level. Um, and um, so is it that that part of the, the, the journey is interesting. It, it has definitely benefited you that that you did not become that recognizable but you, but I'm not gonna let you downplay it. You still worked more than me back then, uh, <laughs> before I before I got that darn show. So I'm not gonna let you sit up here and act like you did a couple commercials and uh, two episodes of Webster. Right. This dude, this, this dude was was pounding the pavement every other day with his mama and doing yeah. going on auditions and competing against the best of the best from the Tobey Maguires to the uh, to the Leos and the Brian Austin Greens. He was right there in the mix. So that means you made some money, sucker. 
you made some money. <laughs> and when you and when you were 18 years old, I want to know, did it help? Did you buy anything with the money that you had made that you remember? You know, when you came into money at 18, um, how did that money specifically for you help you transition into um, your education life and, and, and what was going to be your journey to become a director? Great question. And absolutely. Thanks again to my parents. And, you know, we put it away. We were very careful with it so that it, it really just went into education. It paid for my college so I could come out of college without debt, like so many people, you know, have to deal with. And then, you know, that makes an enormous impact on the decisions you're able to make. You know, can you afford to go work as a sort of unpaid theater intern over the summer? Can you do these things that that show you the paths you might want to walk on in, in your life? And if you can't afford to do that and you're working two jobs or three jobs, you have a, a burden of student debt, you just can't do it. So I think it gave me a lot of freedom to be able to to play around and see what I wanted to do. Yeah. But that's about all nice. it did. It didn't set me up for, for, you know, my adult life at all, you know, in terms of the money. Okay. But, but that's a big yeah. thing. I mean, that's a, a, you were, think about it. You were left with your anonymity. Yeah. But you had no debt coming out of college. Yeah. That's freaking huge. And you were about to get an amazing mentor, which leads me to Ed Zwick. Yeah. Um, what he meant to you in your life as a mentor and the, ir- the irony is somebody that I would consider to be my mentor as a writer um, was Joel Zwick, who is not oh. his brother. No. But not his brother at all. They have no relation at all. But Joel Zwick directed many episodes of Full House and Family Matters. And he also directed um, um, a little my, movie called uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Yeah. And I remember going to see My Big Fat Greek Wedding. And I was in awe. Because Joel was literally the fastest director out of all the directors in the TGIF family. He would, we would get off, we would start rehearsal at like 11 o'clock and be done by two o'clock. And we hadn't really done anything. He was famous for putting everybody in a line on Full House. So (laughs) unfortunately, I'm going to, I'm going to give up one of the jigs of Full House. If you go watch any episode of the old Full House, for the most part, they're all standing in a line across the entire freaking stage. There's no staggering to the blocking or anything like that. They're just in this line. And other directors would just kind of scarf at it. Just you know, like, yeah, freaking Joel, he just puts them in a line. That's it. He just puts them in a line. Nobody's, there's no movement in that scene, right? Yeah. And I'm watching my Big Fat Greek Wedding, and I'm like, who the F directed this? And I called up Joel, and I was working on a screenplay at the time that I was diligently trying to get made. And, uh, and I'm like, Joel, I just wanted to say congratulations. And, and I, I was just like, I didn't, I didn't know. And he was just like, well, Jalil, there's the job of directing. And then there's the passion of directing. And then I'm like, would you mind reading this script that I'm working on? Um, you know, I just like to get some notes. And that started a, no joke, four week, four to five week process of me driving to his house in Tarzana every other day in between the changes that I were making, the revisions I was making. And him teaching me about story driving down, 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 down. I did, I had already graduated from college. I didn't learn any of this crap in college, even and I did go to intend to have great classes. But it took him to get me to understand how to even take notes from executives, which is a completely different um, politic than taking notes from your professor. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna stop right there. <laughs> And kick it to you and Edswick and what he taught you. That's great. Wow. Uh, Edswick, yeah, taught me so much about being a filmmaker, sure. 
how, how about be, how to be a good dad, how to be a good husband, how to be a good person in this business. I mean, it's remarkable that I got to meet him and, and I really do owe my career to him. I opened up a little theater here in Los Angeles uh, after I moved to L.A. I bet a couple of years out of college, I moved to L.A. and I opened up this little theater uh, storefront down on Pico Boulevard, only area I could uh, sort of afford to pay the rent. We raised a bunch of money by taking over this this club in, in Silver Lake for every Monday when they were normally closed and we would bring people in and throw a party and we we would get the money from the door and the club would get the alcohol that got sold. And we did that over the year. And we we raised enough money to kind of have the seed money to rent this little storefront. And we opened this theater. It was called The Black Dahlia. It was going to be dedicated to new plays. I built the seating risers and hung the lighting grid and built the little stage. Actually, a friend of mine from college who had done Habitat for Humanity so he was the only guy who had power tools and really knew how to use them was this guy, Seth Gordon, who's gone on to become like an amazing director, producer, um, fantastic guy, documentarian as well. Brilliant, brilliant guy. Um, but so so Seth helped me build the stage, too, because he had some cool power tools. But anyway, we, the first show I did there was this play about Orson Welles. And um, and for some reason, because it was about Orson Welles, uh, a lot of people in Hollywood seem to be interested in it because people in Hollywood love Orson Welles. He's the sort of you know, a most amazing, but also most tragic character in our history. And uh, this wonderful writer named Richard Kramer came to see it because it had been reviewed in the LA Weekly and he took a chance on it. And it's a little, it was a, my theater was 30 seats, tiny, and like a place where you would definitely be worried if you're, you're, that your car would still be there when the show was over uh, on the street. And, uh, <laughs> and, and he, uh, he loved the show and he was a writer. Uh, he'd been a writer on 30 something. He was a writer currently on this show once and again. And uh, so he invited Ed Zwick and a few other people from from that show, including Winnie Holtzman, who ended up writing the musical Wicked and really amazing people. And they came Huge to mugs. Yes. Awesome people. And they so th so they came to see my little tiny theater play about Orson Welles. And I remember because I would, you know, every day I'd have to listen to the answering machine and write down all the people that wanted reservations because this was the olden times. And um, and then on my answering machine, there was this message from Ed Zwick saying, you know, I, I went to see your show. I thought it was really well done. And why don't you give me a call and come on down and we'll have a meeting. So I went down to his office and had a great chat with him and talked about theater and film and TV. And he said, well, why don't you come by and start shadowing down here? And so I shadowed, shadowed Peter Horton and a bunch of other great directors who are working on that show. And He'd sort of just be like, well, yeah, come back next week or come back the week after. And then eventually I'd been there for just so long. I was working my part time job as an SAT tutor and I was working at the theater and I was making ends meet however I could. And I was shadowing down there. And then he, he, he called me up when I was at the SAT company and he said, uh, how would you like to start prep tomorrow? You know, I've got a sh an episode here that I've been holding. See if you felt like you'd learned enough and you knew your stuff. And I was like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I was able to walk into my awesome boss at the SAT tutoring company and say, uh, I got to quit. I got a job. I'm starting tomorrow. And uh, and that was the dream. And so that episode was written by Winnie Holtzman, the writer of Wicked. And and uh, I started prep the, the next day. And that was that. It was pretty awesome. Yeah. Wow. That is an that is really a dope story. And I'm, I'm going to piggyback it. Because you did so many things in that journey that you may you may or may not be aware of. I don't know. But Leslie Moonves was quoted as saying, um, and I'm not sure he even knows I'm aware of this quote, that um, Family Matters is a great moneymaker, but it lacks snob appeal. 
Hmm. And I read that in an art article one time. And I read it when, when I read it when I was kind of young still. So I was kind of like, I didn't understand what that meant. And um, what you did with the Black Dahlia Theater Company, unknowingly or, or knowingly, was by focusing on Orson Welles as a subject matter, you, you uh, placed yourself on the radar of the true movers and shakers of our business who have very, very firm opinions about the, um, the, the, the forefathers of Hollywood, you know, right. the guys, the guys who did it. So even though it might've been a small little theater and it wasn't, you know, it, underground stuff is cool. So here's the, who's this young guy in this underground theater that thinks he's going to tell us something about Orson Welles that we don't know. Right. That's what right. you curated for yourself and you didn't even realize it. So yeah. all of a sudden you start getting this, you start getting this, this, um, this pedigree of talent, producers, writers, directors that are coming through. And now that takes me to the next thing that it requires to get work in this town period is familiarity. Right. And so through that, through that, that sense of, okay, we have a, we have a sensible, we have a, a similar taste now in material. I like this young man's taste. Let's keep them around a little bit and see if we can if we can develop some familiarity. Yeah. So in in that one move, you were able to escape something that I want to talk to you about, which is director typecasting. Hmm. People always come up to me and they want to talk to me about typecasting. They say, man, do you ever feel like you were typecast? This and I'm like, I just kind of shrug it off because I'm like, dude, that's such a layered question. Like, I don't want to answer it. Like, the bottom line is I made good money. It was a great job. I had fun. It's on to the next jobs. And it's like, oh, he's in denial. <laughs> right? And it's like, right? It's like, no, man, you don't get it. Like, our business is just like any business in that you chart a career path and hopefully the decisions that you make will not be held against you, but you really are only as good as the people that you worked for or work with. Right. And that's just the reality of our business. So, Based on your acting pedigree, I know you've been in so much multicam stuff. This right. kid is multicam, 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 multicam. But you started hanging out and becoming familiar with all of these single camera guys. Were you conscious that these guys were going to keep you from ever having to direct some booty episode of a freaking <laughs> Disney Channel sitcom ever in your life? That's so funny. I Well said. Uh, I come from theater, you know. Well, I come from... I come from a lot of different things, but I have been doing a lot of theater. And in theater, you should be able to do everything. You should do comedy, you, you should be dramas, you Shakespeare, yep. you new plays, whatever. And in fact, the best plays are plays that are all sorts of genres combined into one, right? They make you laugh, they make you cry, they're everything. Um, and so for me, I, at this point in my mid-20s, like, you know, I was ready to kind of do anything. And I was like, oh, yeah, if I can get, you know, I'm going to go into television, I should be able to do comedies and dramas, which, of course, is not the way it works. But because no, I <laughs> didn't know that um, it ended up working out that way. Because my first job was for Once and Again, which was a family drama for ABC for Ed Zwick. And the, and the next thing I did, luck, luckily, was a comedy for Steve Levitan, uh, who ended up creating you know, Modern Family. This was a, a show called Oliver Bean. And so I ended up doing this 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 family drama and then this broad comedy. And, I, and then I started working on Everwood, which was a, a drama. And then, I, you know, so I've gone back and forth between different kinds of shows, medical dramas, action shows uh, intentionally. And I, I noticed that, you know, when I started working on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and that show became very hot. I was sent a lot of comedy opportunities, which was great. 
But I also was very intentional about saying, well, let's keep going after um, those great dramas. I want to work on Mad Men. I want to work on Six Feet Under. I want to be able to do these different kinds of shows. Um, and so I have willfully tried to balance that. And I have to say, it's it's been, I've been very lucky to be able to do it. But now in the streaming era, it's super exciting because now people are making those television shows that blend genre the way that theater yep. has been doing forever. And so like the show I was doing for Hulu, The Great, which is about Catherine the Great, but it's very irreverent. And it's a black comedy with Elle Fanning, Nick Holt. Like that show requires a lot of comedy, a lot of drama, a lot of big sort of epic period sort of scale. And the fact that I was luckily able to do all these different genres has been really exciting because now as they come together, I feel like I have the toolkit to be able to do things that combine them. Well, I just actually suggested a multi-cam director for a single camera project because I'd worked with this multi-camera director. And um, I just, one of the things that I liked about this director was just, he never came in and gave us an actor note that was not just absolutely insightful. And he wouldn't even speak that much. He kind of let us just work it out. And then if he spoke, he'd be like, hey, you know, you might want to try this, this or that. He'd always even pose. It was never an order. It was almost kind of like, I saw something you might want to, you know, he just had these words that served it up like a nice hors d'oeuvre, but really it was like, no, bro, you just caught a, a big fix right there. Right. And, um, but he's multicam and right. he's African-American and literally um, he's multicam and he's African-American and, and he, it was shut down at the suggestion. Really? That he do anything. Yes. Half hour. Any, and this was for another half-hour project, but the half-hour project was single camera. And the bottom line is, unless he gets out there and he raises some money, or unless he creates a familiarity with somebody who is higher up on the single camera side, and they decide to throw him a bone, he is never going to direct a studio-level project that is single camera. They are going to keep him in multi-cam. Yeah, yeah he's a multi-cam director, and they won't give him a shot with single camera. Yeah, yeah, it's true. He's going to have to raise his own money to to shoot something single camera that wins accolades, right? Becomes you know appealing at the snob level, you know, be people that vote in academies and things of that nature, and that's the only way he's ever going to get a job on single camera stuff, right? And that's just a reality for a lot of cats. Hey, folks, Jaleel here. This episode is sponsored by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community where millions come together to take the next step in their creative journey with thousands of inspiring classes for creative and curious people on topics including illustration, design, photography, video, freelancing, and more. Now, when I learned about Skillshare, I knew I had to use it to step up my photography game. My girlfriend was always telling me that she hates my photos that I take of her on her iPhone. This is a huge conundrum for boyfriends everywhere. But I use Skillshare to learn a bit about photography, and now I'm the only one that can take her pictures. Skillshare offers membership and meaning. With so much to explore, real projects to create, and the support of fellow creatives, Skillshare empowers you to accomplish real growth. Explore your creativity at Skillshare.com forward slash ever. And the first 1,000 people to use our link will get a free trial of Skillshare premium membership. That's Skillshare.com forward slash ever. I want to switch subjects on. I want to, since I only have a few minutes left, though, I want to talk about Spoils of War, man. I love, 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 love that episode. Thank you. Um, the the epic battle between, um, with Jamie Lannister and Bronn at the center of it, where, you know, Bronn shoots the, the dragon and, and, you know, right out of the sky, 
please take me through your stepped out blocking and 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 set up for that for that scene. I mean, there's so many. Are, are, is it all CGI? How many extras are we really talking about? Like, just sure. give me a, 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 an audible visual of your process when you see a scene like that on paper, because that is amazing. Because I really pay close attention to even Bronze um, to his his blocking, getting to that and revealing the the uh, the arrow that he was going to use. You use his blocking as a reveal. You use the fight and everything that he was as a reveal. Yeah, I mean, when I talk about my experience of that on the page, that when I first got that script and I was reading it and it was just was the battle started and I thought, oh, this is amazing. And then it just kept going and kept going and kept going and got more and more terrifying and intimidating for me. Um, but it, it is uh, one of the most fun things I've had the pleasure of doing. Um, you know, first of all, I, I sort of had to just wrap my head around, uh, you know, all of the different elements of the battle, how I wanted to stage it, where we were going to shoot it, picking a location, and then designing the sequence to fit the location. Um, and right. I also, also really wanted to figure out sort of point of view, because uh, there are a lot of different people in that battle, a lot of people we care about, but I wanted to, to focus carefully around one dominant POV so they could guide you through it, and I think anchor it. And there had been some pretty badass uh dragon battles in the past on at game on game of thrones that were really focused on daenerys and the dragon so i thought yeah. it was much more interesting to focus on jamie lannister and to be with these soldiers on the ground who are about to see war change forever and about to you know have what they know of as war which is sort of roman style lining up with your shields and uh and honorably going about a battle, you know, having that completely change with the introduction of like an F-16 in a medieval fight, you know, basically. Um, and so it was also analogy. the horror of war, too. You know, it was like this was like napalm being dropped for the first time. You know, it was it was about just the unbelievable destructive power of it. And then in retrospect, for those of you who have seen the series conclude, it's sort of the beginning of this idea that Daenerys is actually kind of a cruel adversary and will go as far as she needs to go. So it's establishing this idea that maybe if she gets all the power, it won't end up being such a good idea. Um, oh, so, okay. Yeah. I see you with the foreshadow. Yeah. I see you with the Because yeah. that's what she did. Yeah. <laughs> so it's humanizing really by, really by focusing on Jamie and Braun. And, and I really just wanted to feel like we were in it. So, I, I, you know, the visceral aspect was hugely important. So I did a lot of storyboarding. And then we have this really amazing tool now that's come about in the last few years called Previs, which is like an animated movie version of it. They take your boards, they turn it into a kind of animated version and you can design your shots. Oh, wow. You can combine shots. You can make, you know, they, they base it off of a What's scan of the actual location. So, you know, that shots will work or they won't, or, ah, oh, shit, there's a mountain between me and the, where the, you know, the cavalry should be. Um, so I need to change that shot and all that. So that's a brilliant tool. And then, yeah, there's, there were a lot of people out there, hundreds of hundreds and hundreds of extras, uh, all Spanish speaking. So we had Spanish uh, first AD to kind of coordinate and wrangle. And uh, and then a, a lot of uh, a lot of cameras. I think we had up to about seven or eight on some of our days, um, 50 to 100 horses, depending on the day. A lot of real stuff, a lot of David Lean old style stuff, which is great for to have those resources. And then just a ton of CGI too to make it feel like thousands. Wow. 
Wow, wow. What was the um what was the program again though that you that you mentioned? Oh, just it's a it's called Previs. Um they, okay. you know, they use it for I'm using it right now on the Marvel project I'm doing. I use it a lot. It's, it, it allows you to see it before you've actually done it and figure out exactly how you're going to make every shot work. So we would do this, you know, this, I would create this elaborate animated version of the sequence. And then we would just sit around a giant table with all the department heads, you know, the stunt coordinator, special effects, visual effects, the cinematographer. And we would look at every single shot and be like, all right, how the hell are we going to do this? What camera gear do we need? What, how many extras, you know? How will each shot be done so that by the time you get to the set, you aren't figuring anything out on the day because that stuff is just too big to spontaneously create. It all has to be planned like, you know, General Patton. It's like an invasion. Yeah. Coming from theater, who do you credit with getting you up to speed technically with those that many departments all all all, you know, clicking at the same time? There has to be somebody that that really was like, all right. I'm about to pull you into the matrix. <laughs> that guy is Ed Zwick. You already brought him up. And in fact, the best, the best phone call, email, whatever I got after, after that episode of Game of Thrones aired was from Ed, who called me up. Because after I directed for him on Once and Again, he brought me down to kind of to be an assistant, help out a little bit on The Last Samurai, the movie that he was making with Tom Cruise. And I watched him stage giant horse, you know, cavalry charges and big VFX stuff. And so he, he called me up and he was like, you did so well. You, you know, I saw you back on Last Samurai with your eyes open, like watching all that stuff and taking it all in. And here it is. You, 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 you did it, you know, however many years later, a decade later, um, you made it your own. You improved on it with the technology that you have now. But, but clearly I learned it from watching him do it. You know, um, those elements are really hard. If you walk in without any kind of fluency, in stunts or visual effects or special effects, it is really tough to learn that stuff on the job. And so luckily by observing and shadowing and being around and, you know, even in my own directing stuff, you know, as VFX became more and more a part of what we did, I, I became more and more fluent in it. I would do action shows and I would do things that, that expanded what I could do so that by the time I got to Game of Thrones, I felt like, oh, okay, I've got all these things in my tool belt. I just have never done them at the same time and at this level, but at least I understood the language. Had you have you ever come across an actor on set who let you know quickly they did not wish to be directed by you? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, sure. Yeah, of course. You know, especially when I was young, I, you know, I got a lot of I always looked younger than I was, which was a good thing when I was a kid actor. You know, it it allowed me to play younger than I was. I probably got a lot of my work for that reason. Um, But Uh, You know, yeah, people would look at you. They'd sort of, you know, try to sniff you out and see if you knew what you were talking about. Um, And uh, I had a friend who was a TV director said, yeah, you've got five minutes to prove you're not an idiot. You know, they will test. They will (laughs) test you. You better know your shit. I'm not I'm not going to say the cast member, but I am going to say the show. I did an episode of Hawaii Uh Five-0 and um, and. the director for that week, he had done Mighty Ducks. I forget his name. I feel bad though at this point, but he had done Mighty Ducks, the movie. Yeah. And um, and I remember uh, he came up to me at the hotel and was, you know, and he saw us at the bar. It was, and I and I, I was in a scene with Paulie Shore, and Paulie Shore is kind of a wild man when he's when he's uh, in his in his private life. So 
Again, I've got a private. I just want to chill in the background at a hotel bar. Pauly Shore wants everybody to know we're there. Right. So he had been observing us, this guy, this entire time and not knowing he's going to be our director for the next day. So he got to know us. It was cool. I didn't even need him to do that. But uh, but the next day, it definitely helped with camaraderie. And we got on the set. Um, he had he had all of these. Uh, he had all of these uh, all of these pages dog eared and notes and everything. He was the binder guy. He was the guy who has everything <laughs> in his binder. Sure. Right. Yeah. And um, and he gets down on one knee and I'm in I'm in this scene with one of the stars of the show. And he gets down on one knee and puts his binder over his knee to begin explaining what he thinks the scene is at the very beginning. And the actor literally lifts him up gently by his elbow and he says, hey, man, we don't need all that. Just shoot it. It's video. Use the parts that you like. (laughs) (laughs) I have never... I have never seen, well, actually there is another story, but I'll save it for another time. I, that's probably the second worst time I've seen a director completely emasculated right in front of me. Oh my and gosh. He, he handled it like a champ and since I'm a pro, I like to think I am. And that other actor is a pro. I'm, I'm not going to say anything about that other actor. You know, I feel like he and I were able to just work out, work it out. But when that happens in that moment, you know, what goes through your head? How do you regroup? And and would you and do you even think about re-engaging with that actor? You, yeah, <laughs> I mean that is that's a horrifying story. I certainly have had versions of that story. Um, <laughs> Give me one. Come and, on, man. Give me well, one. <laughs> no, I mean it's 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 you're a guest when you're when you're coming into an episodic situation. Yeah. <laughs> you're coming into an episode of Hawaii Five O, and you know it's hard. You have to make everybody trust you. You're, you're the leader, but you're also the guest leader, which is hard. Um, and so a big part of it is psychology. It's about getting to know everybody, sensing how the set works, trying to be respectful of everyone who has been doing this for maybe years, who knows. Um, it's why I generally gravitate towards pilots or ways that you can be involved in creating something from the ground up. Um, because it's more fun for me to treat it like a play where you're building that community to begin with and you're all starting to create it together. And it, it's a little bit less sort of stressful and difficult than jumping into something midstream. So I definitely try to avoid it. But the best story I've heard in that is is um, my friend Mark Mylod, who's an amazing director from Game of Thrones also in succession now. And uh, on Game of Thrones, he was directing a, a legendary uh, British actress who shall <laughs> remain nameless, but I mean, just <laughs> legendary. And um, and he went in his first day with her to, to give her a note. And he was like, so, you know, I was thinking it's you know, this. And he started sort of talking about, you know, what his note was. And she just looked at him with a steely gaze and said, go away. Um, <laughs> at which point Mark was like, yes, all right, yes, all right, I'll go away. And he goes like away. And this is one of the nicest, most brilliant directors out there with brilliant things to say. And at some point you're just like, well, if they're not going to hear me, you just got to kind of, you know, do your thing and find other ways. You know, I think the biggest rule in directing is the is the rule of improv it's rule it's the same thing that works for actors the yes and it's the same rule for raising toddlers like the one that i have um you just you avoid saying no you say yes and let's build on your idea um let's try even if by the time you finish shooting it you've gone completely 180 on what you originally started um but at least you always feel like you're moving forward as opposed to you know, trying to to be critical or or change someone's thinking about something. You just slowly add little bits of thinking to it, which I love the the director you brought up, who is great with actors. You know, it's yeah, it's always about suggestions and ideas, 
because you're working with people who are brilliant and who have put a lot of thought into what they're doing. And you want to make sure that you're respectful of that and that you're you're helping that person find an organic way forward and not just, you know, telling them, you know, how they should play a scene because how dare you, you know? I love yes and. I'm incorporating that into my life. I've never had it put so succinctly though. Yes and. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Um, I'm going to let you run. I know I know you got to go. I could talk to you for another darn hour, man. And at some point we just got to get together and have a beer. Um, Definitely. I want to ask you one one human question though. What gives you the most joy outside of the uh, outside of directing and just being in show business? That completely away from the business, what gives you the most joy? Just that has nothing to do with Hollywood at all. And do you have a desire to act anymore? Do you think you will find that as you get older? Will you will you put yourself in? Will you pull a Kenya Barris and be like, Hey, wait a minute, <laughs> homie. You're supposed to be right. You're supposed to be writing for other people. <laughs> Uh, wow. I mean, the, the first question is so easy to answer because it's my four-year-old daughter, Maisie, who is the greatest thing in the world and who I love to death. Um, would I would I ever act again? Maybe. You know, I think it's actually a psychological test. If I could act again and not bring with me all the baggage of all the years that you, know, you and I shared being kid actors in this business, if I could go to it and really just do it for the pure joy and not be critical of myself and not be worried about how good I was or how I looked or how I fit in or if I fit in. If I could get there, I would love to do it because acting at its best is play and imagination. And I love playing with my daughter all the time. And if I could do that, it would be fun on a set. It would be. I just don't know that I'm self-actualized enough to actually do it. I think you are. You're not giving yourself enough credit. Matt Shackman, thank you for rapping with me, dog. Uh, I will be in touch off this podcast because you are a phenomenal dude, man. Seriously, you got a lot to be proud of. And I'm going to get some more stories out your butt, though. I know you got some good ones. <laughs> oh, man, this was a pleasure. Thank you so much. All right, cool. Take care. All right. Goodbye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.